Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Annabeth Lane Amanda Hatherly Bram Lightborn Matt Frederick and Elliot Conklin are now inscribed in the Team Human Book of Life they walk the earth secure in the knowledge that they have asserted their strange but important place in the natural order they feel empowered to embrace the ambiguity of existence without fear and because they went to teamhuman.fm and clicked on support, they also gained access to our Discord channel and live discussions, links to paywalled pieces on Medium, and my archive of interviews with counterculture legends since the 1980s. Join us and see the world as it truly is. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, tech support for reality engineers, and life support for those of us who have been in the trenches too long without a nice, long spooning session at home. We are your spoon, so cuddle up and get some nourishment. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, library technologist, owner of Metafilter, rural tech evangelist in Vermont, and author of Without a Net, Librarians Bridging the Digital Divide, my friend, Jessamine West. Most of the people in my community, you know, they don't go online to speak to tens of thousands of people. You know, they're enough in their community in a lot of ways, or maybe they're getting on Facebook and then they don't feel like it's enough because they're comparing themselves to influencers and, and other people. And I think part of the mission is is convincing people it is okay to have just your thing be your thing. Jessamine will be sharing the joys of hands-on technology education in the public library and how modeling behavior may just work better than scaling it. 
It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So how are you all doing? I've been so tired lately, and it's not like I got mono or something. Just friggin' exhausted. It's like um, every time I, I touch technology, it's like touching ground. Not in the good way of touching ground, but like all the ions are just kind of sucked out of me. And I think it's because I had such a, a, a bear of a semester last semester teaching at, uh, at Queens College. It was just, um, you know, one of my courses was online, one was off, but um, uh, something about it, something about since we came back from COVID, it's like everybody seems so distracted. The students are just like doing the kind of uh, utilitarian minimum that they need to get through. There's very little of the kind of, let's just explore things, you know, the the beauty of academia, which is that you have a few years to think out loud with other people and experimentally. So if if right now it's like if, if students aren't just focused on uh, the utilitarian value of the education to help prepare them for a job. They just want the credits, you know, the credits to get them a degree to then, I suppose, you know, say they went to college or, or, or get a job through that. Almost just like to, to check this thing off. And, um, I guess it hit me most. It was during, uh, during finals week. I, I finally received a, uh, I received an AI paper. You know, it was it was clear as day. A student in my uh, propaganda course at Queens College who had barely been able to construct a sentence all semester turned in a final paper with perfect organization and zero punctuation errors. It was as if someone else had written the paper. And yeah, that someone else was artificial intelligence. In previous semesters, and I've really only been teaching, what, eight years, I've had occasionally I've encountered papers that were downloaded from web-based services or simply cut and paste from essays and articles or even Wikipedia. And they were easy enough to find, you know, by taking a, a particularly suspicious clause and doing a web search, and then I find where the whole thing came from, as if, as if they were, were wanting to be caught. Some students even turned in papers that were written by other students from previous semesters of my course. And sometimes not even, you know, taking the, the, the time and energy to retype it themselves. They'll just put some, some like white out or something or, or little pieces of white paper over my comments on the paper and Xerox it and turn in the same paper with their own name and a slightly different font on the top. You know, <laughs> so... Because I teach at a public college, many, most really, of my students, they're not wealthy enough to uh, hire tutors or those online 
academic kind of task rabbits that write papers. A friend of mine who teaches at an elite high school, he once challenged a student to answer a few basic questions about a paper to see if he even understood what was on the page that was written by the tutor or service. And the students then complained and the teacher was put on suspension for traumatizing the boy by challenging him about the ideas in his own paper. You know, and chat... GPT, uh, it, this this thing. If you go to Open uh, Open AI, uh, you'll see this thing Chat GPT where you can you know type in anything you want. It kind of levels the playing field because right now anyway it's free, so it gives students without any money to pay for a bespoke paper from an anonymous graduate student gig worker. It gives them an opportunity to produce and submit essays they haven't written, and so far the results are not at what, at least not what I would normally consider college level. Yes, the, the sentences are clear and the organization of the paper is good. And, you know, but many of my college students, they've not had the opportunity to learn the, the basics of nouns, verbs, sentences, and paragraphs. So the papers do stand out as, oh, that's clearly written, you know, and compared with many of the papers I receive, which have been produced really on an iPhone with speech to text and no proofreading, the AI produced essays are of professional caliber. But to, to an experienced essay reader, they all exhibit these telltale signs of, of synthetic production. The depth of analysis, it remains exactly constant. There's no aha moments, no incomplete thoughts, no wrestling with ambiguity. It all reads like Wikipedia. It's no doubt where much of the thinking by the AI has been derived, at least indirectly. Still, you know, without proof, it's hard to accuse a student of writing a paper that looks and feels like it has been generated by AI. And the AIs will no doubt get better with time. So what's a teacher to do? Part of me says, just screw it. Who cares, right? I mean, if they want to cheat, let them cheat. I don't care. But assuming we do care that grades matter and that as accrediting institutions, we need to enforce basic academic integrity, there are a few good alternatives. First and easiest are these free online analytical tools like Glitter, G-L-T-R, where you can paste the suspicious text and then determine how predictable each word of the essay is based on the ones it followed. The more predictable the words, the more likely they were produced by an AI. So Glitter highlights each predictable word in green and more surprising terms, meaning human ones, what tech people would call noise, but I would call signal, those get tagged in yellow or red. So it's kind of cool. And, you know, so if you, if you see one that, you know, comes out all green or mostly green, you're like, oh, this is so predictable. It's, it's an AI trying to um, build the next word based on the last one. But honestly, I'm thinking that the problem of students submitting fraudulently produced papers, it points to a more fundamental issue with how we do education. Instead of 
entering a technological arms race against cheating students. We need to shift our approach to achievement, to assessment. Many professors I know who are educated in Europe, they've never encountered a Scantron answer sheet before coming to the U.S. For them, the essay submitted by a student is not the culmination of a semester's work, but the starting place for a conversation. It's as if our our whole model of education with students taking tests and writing essays to prove their competency in order to get a passing grade and credit toward a degree is itself a one-size-fits-all artifact of the industrial age. I understand why we might want to give competency exams to paramedics and cab drivers before entrusting them with our lives, but a liberal arts education, it's not a license to practice. It is an invitation to engage with ideas, with culture and society. That's a hard culture to engender with 50 or more students in a seminar or several hundred in a lecture, particularly when many colleges can no longer afford teaching assistants or graduate students to help read papers. It's even harder when students are showing up more for the credit than for the learning. But the only truly workable response to a student population that has turned to AI to produce its papers is to retrieve the time-consuming, face-to-face interaction that, for me anyway, constituted the most memorable moments of my education. Yes, I'm talking about live conversations with students about their ideas, their perspectives on what they've read, or even their responses to my questions about their work. In some sense, we can see the way a student has resorted to AI-produced essays as an entirely utilitarian response to an educational culture that has become far too utilitarian itself. If we want our students to bring their human selves to the table, we have to create an educational environment that engenders human engagement. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm delighted to bring you this conversation with Jessamine West, who I first met through a group of writers maybe 20 years ago, and whose work I've long admired as an example of truly local activism and mutuality that spreads less by scaling than by sharing. The closest conversation I've had to this one was with Vermont baker Suzanne Sloman back in 2018. That's episode 79 for those who want to check it out. The epiphany here is in the texture of the conversation and the very nature of Jessamine's engagement with the world. The what sure matters, but the part that gets to me is the how. Here's Jessamine West. So I just so much I want to talk with you about. What it all comes down to for me is the sort of the power of the local, the yeah. power of the stuff that's appropriately scaled rather than infinite. And it feels like in so many different areas, you are helping even, even either directly by teaching or in your example, kind of showing the the power of doing things at their own scale rather than infinitely. So I'm, I'm interested in your journey and how you as a, a really smart kind of library thinker person who got, a I guess, a master's in library science, and then you chose not to go to like whatever it is, you know, I don't know, Yale experimental library science, but to a real community and to be a real librarian. Sort of a real librarian. Like I work in my library, but my but my main job is like an amalgam of a lot of different things. Like my main right. job isn't I clock in at the library and do library stuff. I do work at the library, but not it's part of my overall thing. Right. Which is sort of like, and the overall thing is almost like using the library towards like helping people with like uh, careers and technology and so what's like your official duties are, right, not to sit at the desk and tell people, oh, the Whitman books are over there under the big W. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, I do a lot of writing and public speaking about library and digital divide topics. But when I'm working at my library, I'm either the sub because somebody's out and we have a tiny library. It's got two and a half mm. full-time employees and then super part-timers like me. And I basically hang out there on Thursday afternoons and help people with technology, whatever that means. It could be a phone. It could be most recently a portable CD player, like a printer, trying to figure stuff out. I got to apply for a job. I got to you know get this picture on the internet, whatever it is. And that's the stuff that then you document in the drop-in? That's drop-in on Twitter? That's drop-in time on Thursday afternoons. So these are all people going to the Randolph Public Library, physically, usually, to see you. Yep. Kimball Public Library. It's named after Robert Uh Kimball, blah, 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 blah. One of the old white dudes in town from a million years ago. But yeah. And I also help people over email, over Zoom, basically anything except the telephone. Right. And th- and they're cool stories. I mean, so anybody just go to um, what is it even on Twitter? What is it called? It's called Twitter dot com slash Jessamine, and it's a moment called Tales from Drop in Time. It's pinned for my profile, and it's right. also I pinned it over on Mastodon too because oh my god, Twitter lately. Yeah, 
Uh, well, that's a whole, that's another <laughs> whole story, but we yes. will get to that one too, I hope. But is, is like, so is Randolph though, Randolph, the library, Kim library, is that like where your like health insurance and stuff comes from? Is that like oh, your Oh no, I pay for my thing? own health insurance, like a self-employed dork. Really? Oh, yeah. welcome. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Like it's, it's my biggest expense basically. And probably it's going to be my biggest expense after, you know, heating because I, we were talking in the pre-roll, like I'm now in a in a house instead of an apartment with free heat, and it's a it's a it's a thing. Oh, it is going to be just watch. And the bigger the house, the more it costs for some reason. I think well, it's because you're heating and my more house space. Is both big and small in that the rooms that I stay in in the winter time, you know, it's three <laughs> tiny rooms, not the rest of the rooms. And I just tell guests talk to me in spring before you visit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's smart. That's smart. So then, so you're cobbled together all these other things. I yeah. mean, so the big one that, I mean, I, I know, but that's also because it was only two years ago or yet you, you bought Metafilter. I didn't even buy it. I was given it uh, basically <laughs> this summer. It's not, I mean, again, like there's two questions, right? What do you do in your life and what do you do to pay the bills? Right. And what I do in my life is a whole bunch of things, many of which do not pay the bills. And Metafilter is one of those. Basically, you know, it's had three owners, uh, similar to my home, actually. The guy who started it, the guy who got it from that guy when that guy didn't want it anymore, and then me who took it over when that guy was just having a hard time in a whole bunch of ways and was looking to essentially offload it for lack of a better word. Like I love the place, mm -hmm. but it, it, you know, it's, it's not like a money generator. It's more of an online community. Right. I mean, and for people who don't know, I mean, Metafilter came up when, I mean, gosh, 1999 well last yeah. century. Yeah. And it was a big group blog. It was Matt and other friends back when people were doing their own independent blogs. And this was like one of the first where people could blog together, I guess, for lack of a better word. Anybody with an account could make a post and talk about something neat they found on the web. And it's grown since then. There's a Q&A part of the site. People can upload music, talk about television. But essentially, at its core, that's what it still is. Right. And it never did the bad thing. Well, I guess it did the bad thing in little places. But I guess, how has it protected itself from the kind of generic awfulness that seems to wash over other platforms? Is it by maintaining smaller areas, by having moderation, by just community standards? Two things, what does I it? think. Yeah. One of them, real live moderation by adult people meaning who do it for a job, right? Mm. Like those moderators, unlike many other places like Reddit or whatever, the moderators get paid. Uh, so it's a professional and they get paid, you know, real money, what I perceive to be. It used to be a bigger even job that paid health insurance and whatever, but like everything wow. else, it's gotten smaller. And then the other thing is really uh, the only thing we have to sell is community, right? We're not – it's not FACO community so that we can sell you cars or soda or, you know, lifestyle nonsense. All it is is people who want to be together on the internet, right? It's the corner bar, only there's nothing for sale basically. Right. But there's also this – there's a different 
sense of pressure. Like if you're thinking about, I mean, I know they're very different posting styles, but if you're thinking about posting something on the well, you know, it's basically private because it's a community. You got to pay in to get there. Yeah. You post something on Metafilter, anybody can see it. Yeah. Right. But unless you, you know, you do some kind of private thing, anybody could see it. There's no private thing. It's all right. a public thing. Uh, but it doesn't have that sense of, of public pressure. Like if I tweet something or I don't know what else is out there anymore or <laughs> Facebook something, I guess. Yeah. It feels like it's like going on Google or something where the feeling of being on Metafilter is like being it's, – it's like it feels slower and – contained and I don't feel exposed there in the same way and I'm not sure why well I mean I think you have to kind of I mean it's like small town America right you have to kind of find it because it's what you're looking for you don't just Mm. trip over it accidentally and then you show up like hey what's all this then here's me and my reply guy opinions you know you you wouldn't be there otherwise the 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 population skews older it skews, if not international, at least international tolerant, despite the fact that it's entirely in English. We have not as much representation in the global south as I would want, blah, 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 blah. There's no pictures and there's no – the dopamine hit is low for interacting there compared mm. to Facebook, Twitter, all those places where you get context collapse, but you also get just increasing levels of engagement for fighting with people. And we don't have that. You know, you don't get anything for fighting with people. And I think that keeps people from wanting to go there and just screw around, basically. Right. The flame war is not it's not the default posture. And it's not satisfying there. It is not satisfying at all. Trolls don't get traction there. And so as a result, they don't work for the most part. Right. So that's what gives it then this local feeling. It's interesting what you were saying about. You don't just stumble across it. And it again, it starts making me think about the difference between, and now I'm sounding really old, but <laughs> the library versus we like Google. We are old, Douglas. <laughs> oh, okay. That's what it is. But the library used to have this thing in front with, with drawers called the card catalog, right? And it was... You've heard of them. I you have heard one of in them. my house. Oh, we all oh, do. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, it was this thing and you'd go in. So I was interested really in Edward Albee, this playwright who wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and great yep. things. And I would always go in the library under Albee, pull out their, their A drawer and look under Albee. And from there, you could have this kind of hypertext adventure, seeing a card with a number, and then you go to that number or other thing, in, and then you see the other things around it. And you end up, once you get to a second or third order of like search away from the first card, you find a tributary of knowledge to the thing. And it takes that effort. Or you went to the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, right? And other people found articles that were going to be interesting to you if you liked this article. Yeah. Or there was a shelf even in the place they would pull out. So there was like this, I, I, on the one hand, you could look at it. If you're like Elon Musk, you say, you know, barriers to learning, you know, elitism, everything should be one click away. But because Nothing was one click away, right? Google makes everything like so shallow, like everything is yeah. one search term away. But the the library, it 
created this like local nooks and crannies. And once you're there, the other people who found that book are kind of safe on a certain level. You're, you Well, we call it serendipitous <laughs> discovery, right? I mean, you say you're old, sort of, but realistically, for people older than us, libraries had closed stacks, and you didn't have that. You know, that was a that was a revolution in librarianship. Is that true? Oh, they yeah, were yeah, closed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and in fact, many libraries still have some stuff that's closed, that's that's archival, right? And some stuff that's open. But it used to be in the public library, even you'd have to like bring a little slip up to a person, and that person would go get uh. it, and so you wouldn't get to see the stuff that was next to it on the shelves. And it's an it's an argument for not using offsite storage. This serendipitous discovery, which is Thomas Mann, was one of my favorite librarian of Congress worker guys, who was really like an open stacks advocate and was cranky about it. And would talk about what is lost when you don't have that ability to find your own tributary, as you say. And I mean, to kind of call back to what we were talking about earlier, drop-in time, one of the things that's cool about it is multiple people with different technology concerns are sitting next to each other in the same room and they learn from one another, right? It's not just everybody's in the waiting room and one person comes in at a time. Everybody's sitting there messing around with their phone and they notice what other people are messing around with their phones and they learn a little bit more about the tech environment, not just about their particular issue with their particular thing. Right. And the genius, if I may, if I may say so, the genius behind it is it goes in multiple directions. First, you're creating a local technology culture. So you are grounding people in technology as a helpful community rather than assholes or money makers. And that's the way it well, felt. Internet, we find internet a... people, cranky internet people and technology yeah helper people who are not often helpful like that's the stereotype right it's a dude right. barking at you that you're not doing it right and then you feel bad about it and then you walk away thinking computers are hard that guy's a jerk it's not for right. me and my point but, is it's yeah, for everybody it is and in the old days if i may <laughs> the internet was until aol plugged into usenet right and all the newbies came in looking for porn we welcomed every noob who came in and showed them the ropes and talked to them, you know, and even if a kid would say, a kid, a person would say <laughs> something stupid, you wouldn't just kick them off at first. You'd go, you know, we don't yell at people. I here. mean, flame or- wars <laughs> on Usenet were epic, though. So, oh, that's like, true. <laughs> like, but I they see were it both gorgeous. Ways. Yeah, they were gorgeous yeah, yeah. and epic, though. It was like, you know, Mark Derry or, or you know what I mean? It was like Christopher Hitchens level yeah. uh, uh, flaming that almost deserved a place in our culture. But it's doing that live. But then when you post it on Twitter, each of these interactions, I mean, yeah, you're sharing the actual content of, oh, I didn't know. Right. That's the thing I should get rid of on my phone to make more storage. You know, there's yeah. actual tips I use from it because... I'm a tech genius, right? I'm supposed to be, right? And yeah, yeah. I would say every week there's a tip in there of something that was like, oh, that's... <laughs> right, that, <laughs> that worked was... a different way than I thought it did. Well, especially for smart people. Uh, many of the people I work with are very bright in yeah. their area and tech is not their area. And so you can kind of, once the penny drops, they're just like, wow, like yeah. not only is this for me, but I can massage this to solve my problems. Right. And, you know, you love to see it. 
Right. So you're doing an extremely local, real world thing, thinking, oh, you're only going to reach eight people in a day, but then you reach however many tens of thousands with these things. But then more than that, more than the actual content that we're getting, we're, you're also sharing, oh, what if I set up a drop in time at my library or, you know, I'm never sure. Have other people modeled it? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people often have questions about how to do something similar because, you know, it's it's pretty successful around here. I've been doing it for 15, 16 years, but like I've never been able to make a full-time job out of it. And so I think part of what people are concerned about, you know, the library pays me to sit in a room whether people show up or not. And because mm. libraries are often really tight with money because it's the public's money. So of course they are, they should be. Having somebody sit in a room where they might not be doing work, so to speak, can sometimes be a complicated value proposition, right? And that's tricky. But I think we see a lot of libraries that do a lot of different versions of it. I think the biggest thing to me that's novel and interesting, well, two things. One, that serendipitous people near each other so that everybody kind of hears about it. Like I, I tell them, like, look, show up with a problem to be solved. This isn't class, and then the other thing is, once I talk about it on the internet, technically, I could be talking to the people who are making technology hard to begin with, and maybe they think about like, oh, what would it be like to try and click the little menus on Facebook if my hand were shaking? That would suck, right? I never thought about it because my hand doesn't shake mm. because I'm a 30-year-old white man from Silicon Valley. Yeah. Not that people aren't working on that inclusion work, but not enough of them are for sure. I always, whenever I go in the library now, I always think, could we, if we didn't have libraries, how would we sell the idea to today's society? I don't think they would do it. I don't think you can get around the copyright issues the way we did originally, which is the thing that allows us to do public lending in the first place, right? You see the ebook marketplace and it's ridiculous and libraries are fighting with publishers all the time to make it like work out right. Yeah. But yeah, I think market forces would make it impossible, much less the fact that it's essentially socialism. Right. But if you, I mean, how many libraries are there in the country? Like 50,000 libraries or something? Uh, I think there's like 60,000-ish librarians. And like, for example, Vermont has about 680,000 people and we've got 184 libraries. And that's the most per capita of any state in the country. And it depends huh. if you count like public, academic, school, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, not that many as these things go, you know, but they right. do an awful lot of, for lack of a better word, business. And it's, it's amazing, but it's under the radar because we're not always great self-promoters. Right. But then there's like, so now there's this battle and I was on one side, but then other people on the other side are telling me I'm on the wrong side <laughs> that, uh, you know, Brewster Kale and Internet Archive and he's trying to do this open library thing. I worked for open library when yeah. open library was getting started. And the idea is what? That they're basically buy a book, they scan it and then they make it available one at a time as a digital book online. Yeah, it's, it's called CDL, Controlled Digital Lending. So basically they have the book. They are a library, technically by the laws of California. They scan it. They don't circulate the print book. They do circulate the scanned copy. And it's, it's tricky, right? And the reason they're embroiled in a lawsuit right now is because during COVID, when everybody was stuck at home and people couldn't get to their libraries, they made a lot of these scanned copies available, not 
lending one at a time and publishers got grumpy about it. I uh, I think understandably, even though I'm on Team Internet Archive, generally speaking, but it was it's a gray area and an envelope that they were trying to push because they can take on a little bit more risks than the average public library. Because like my public library, they're the government, right? We're the town. Uh-huh. If we take a risk and we misjudge it and there's a legal problem or a situation, we've endangered the town and we can't. So libraries, because they're an enduring institution, can't take risks the way sort of digital libraries like the Internet Archive uh, can do. And it's an open question. Like people have healthy debates about controlled digital lending. And I think those conversations are good to have because otherwise everything's dictated by publishers who are, again, trying to sell you something. No shade, but it's a different perspective. Right. And I guess it depends. You know, if things were voluntary, it would be different. I mean, me, my goal when I write a book is I want as many friggin' people to read it as possible. Right. Sure. I'll, worst case, I'll pay. You know, it's like, I, give I did me a that dollar. to mine. I bought my copyright back from the publisher for my book about the digital divide so that I could make it available for free online. I thought that right. had value. And also mine was kind of time limited. So, you know, you get decreasing returns over time also. But yeah, different. Yeah. but different authors feel different, right? Depends what your day job is. Right. If you, yeah, Exactly. If your day job is writing, then uh, it's yeah. going to get... <laughs> it gets tricky really, really fast. I mean, yeah, luckily or for not, I mean, I, I found other means of uh, other means of support, which then lets me do whatever podcasting, medium, yeah. whatever, yeah. whatever exactly, it is. Yeah. Right. I mean, for me too, Metafilter, like Metafilter is not probably ever going to be a revenue stream, but I believe it has value in building community and community engagement and giving people places to get their questions answered online outside of sort of the capitalist marketplace. That's my joy. And it's nice to be able to do it. Yeah, it's funny. I was writing a piece about, you know, Twitter because, you know, Elon Musk was saying how, you know, he's going to step down as CEO. And I was like, well, what would I do if I and I was like, if I was CEO of Twitter, I would, you know, want to take the lessons from Metafilter and Reddit and Wikimedia and see if there's some way to create a, a community of, I mean, do you think some of the, the lessons of Metafilter could be applied to Twitter if you really, if, if, if Metafilter just bought Twitter, right, for a yeah. dollar? Yeah, with with none of with our no money. But yeah, I right. mean, I think I think the rule like I think one of the guidelines is moderation works. You just have to pay for it. Right. One of the things everybody wants is they want like a they want an algorithm that can do moderation and and they want it to work and they want it never to work against the people they're trying to protect. But in point of fact, people who know how to gamify stuff often weaponize algorithmic moderation against the people it's designed to protect. And then you get exactly the opposite of what's supposed to happen. So theoretically, I mean, Twitter had a great trust and safety group. They just needed to have five times as many people, 10 times as many people, right? Right. There were some smart people working there, but they were overwhelmed and they had a bunch of dudes in charge who honestly didn't care. I think if you care, that's the first step to working on the problem. But you see Wikimedia having the same but different problem, right? Their problem is there's sort of longtime users who are kind of constant low-level missing stare problems. And because they're so run by the community, as opposed to Twitter that was very hierarchical top-down, 
you know, they wind up in a jam because they would have to change the fundamental structure of how enforcement works in their community in order to be able to really have a place where marginalized people feel safe. And it's it's awkward as hell, right? I don't envy them trying to thread that needle. And everybody on the internet's like, I know how to fix this problem for you. And they don't. Right. I mean, I the way I said to fix the problem is what, get rid of the algorithm. So you... <laughs> you you know, you just see the stuff that you subscribe to and people who subscribe to you get to see you and then take 50, 60 percent of the budget. Consider yourself a publication and get editor standards and practices, get editor, moderator, humans, just pay them. You know, when before Twitter went public, it was making two billion dollars of revenue a year. That's I as much as the New York Times. I can't even get my head Times. around that. Yeah. Yeah. For 140 characters, that was before 280. That was that was at 140 characters. It's like that should be fine. We did it. We win. We win. Right. Right. But there's no there's no moment of we win in tech brohood. Well, and you know, going public allows rich people to get richer, and of course, that's why they head in that direction. I think the big question becomes something like Wikimedia Foundation, which is not created to make rich people richer and was never intended to run like a business. What's getting in their way? And, you know, bureaucracy may be part of it. Like, I, I, I believe everybody there is committed to working on the problem. The other question I often have is how much of getting it wrong is okay, right? Like, if, if only, like, 0.1% of, like, Twitter's marginalized population was getting sort of worked over by people weaponizing algorithms, that's not acceptable, right? But you're never going to make everybody happy. And so how do you figure out exactly how to do that, right? We deal with this at Metafilter all the time. Like, you know, somebody gets kicked off of, of the site for being transphobic, but they can come after us with like DMCA takedown requests that could have, you know, could really do some damage to the website. And so you wind up having to figure out how to be nice to not nice people, not letting them back in necessarily, but at least kind of talking to them about how to not please take down the site. And they're angry and they're upset. Even if they have noxious opinions, they're still people with feelings. Ah, and, 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 and humanizing terrible people is a really bad downside of how you have to, I believe, do effective moderation. And you can't talk about 100% of that without then having to fight with people about the fact that you're humanizing terrible people. You know what I mean? It's it's right. weird. It's a weird bind. Right. And there are people who don't understand quite why what they're saying is so awful. Lots of them. You know? Lots and of them. That's, and it's not because they're evil, but it's like even smart ones who are like, oh, you know, you really kind of evola you know you're kind of into evola now and you're going in a difficult direction well or just understanding your position has nuance there are a lot of people who don't get the nuance of discussing issues that are complicated and then there's extremely online people who absolutely understand all the nuances but some of them are cranky that other people don't get it Right. But somehow engaging with these problems, I mean, as, as well as questions locally on a human to human level, engenders such a different comportment than doing these giant things. It's the meta filter feeling is like, I hate to talk about vibes because I know that's like a fascist thing, but the wait, vibe, wait, the, what? the feeling. Vibes is a fascist vibes, thing? Yeah. Well, the vibes, because they, 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 the politics of vibes rather than facts. Oh, you know, I see what vibe, you're saying. 
different yeah. vibes. It's a, it's they've they've kind of co-opted that as a as a thing. But the ambiance of of Metafilter, the the local it's funny, it it reminds the conversation reminds me of um I did a in college in my directing class, I did a mini production of Peter Hanke's play Offending the Audience, which is I'm this familiar crazy with Hanke, play. but not that. <laughs> It's this crazy thing. It's basically a, a, a manifesto that then you get actors to perform while they're trying to offend people in the audience. And we did it in the class. And we took like my my directing teacher had done a play that semester that was a really kind of a silly version of Sam Shepard's Icarus's, Icarus's mother. And we took the poster of it and tore it up in front of him while we did a satirical rendition of some of the scenes. It was this crazy thing. And everyone's getting upset. And then we end with like the Beatles, all you need is love. And everyone hugs in the middle of the room. And we're all crying because we'd just been through this crazy semester together and we offended everybody, but then brought, and I remember the teacher saying, you know, if this is the only theater you ever do in your life and every, this is it. And, you know, we did something for 10 people in a room that was the truth of theater. And I feel like right now it's so hard to convince people that their moment to moment experience is enough that what they do in their community that helping these 30 people is a life it could be your life achievement that you taught 30 people how to read who wouldn't have read otherwise that you you know what i mean that that you showed that if you were a regular librarian whatever that whatever that means you know just showing people that you showed a kid you know, like the librarian, my God, the librarian in high school who found out I was interested in theater and showed me Harold Clerman's book on directing. She said, Douglas, we've got a book here you're going to love. Yes. I don't know. Maybe she ordered it for me. I have no idea. But she found a book. She changed my life with this book. And this woman in, in Larchmont Library, you know, it right. was enough. Well, and when I was a kid, too, there was the librarian who was like, it's fine if you read above your reading level, just you should know some of these topics maybe don't make sense to you. I mean, I was so lucky. I had parents who also supported this. But I mean, I think that's like, you know, it's Hanukkah season, right? And there's that sort of Dayanu... I'm, I'm probably not even pronouncing it right. It's a word yeah. I know from reading. But but that whole like... Dayenu, yeah. Dayenu, thank you. Which but, is actually Passover, but it's close <laughs> enough. <laughs> but, but I just mean that yeah. concept. Yeah. The concept yeah, yeah. of it would have would been, have been enough. enough. Yeah. And, and I, I think about that a lot because most of the people in my community, you know, they don't go online to speak to tens of thousands of people. You know, they're enough in their community in a lot of ways, or maybe they're getting on Facebook and then they don't feel like it's enough because they're comparing themselves to influencers and, and other people. And I think the, the small towny thing that I think we get from Metafilter that I think I also get from my small town, I do think part of the mission is, is convincing people it is okay to have just your thing be your thing. You know, I spend a lot of time at drop-in time telling Mm -hmm. people they're not bad people because they can't figure out a shitty website, you know, because they feel that's what you need to be doing because they see it on TV, they hear it from other people, they get barked at by by their kids or their grandkids. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can take apart a tractor engine. Sir, <laughs> like you have some amazing skills. You just don't have this one, but you can learn this one. What are, what's right. my luck with the tractor going to be? Give me a break. Like, let's move forward, you know, but I think right. having that approach to it, you know, so we're not comparing right. ourselves to the big city. So we're not feeling like we are not enough is part of the challenge with, you know, teaching people anything, but technology, especially because it feels like the future and people feel like they're not in it. 
and because many technologies have been designed to intimidate the user into thinking that it's not configurable in the way they want to do it. You know what I mean? The whole dark pattern idea? I mean, Epic Games just got spanked by the FTC because they were coercing children into spending their parents' money in a way. I mean, literally, it was like half a billion dollars, $500 million. You know, children were accidentally spending money or feeling like they had to, you know, take steps in these games, in Fortnite and these other games, because Epic job is to make money for Epic, right? As much as their community creation, as a side note, it's not their main thing, right? And I think that's really the difference, right? What's your main thing? It's funny. You're making me think of uh, when I was a kid, there was a guy on TV named Soupy Sales. I know Soupy Sales. He had a kid's show. (laughs) And he got in trouble, ultimately kicked off because he did this joke where he said, okay, kids, I want you to take a dollar from your mommy's purse or your father's wallet, put it in an envelope and send it to Soupy Sales. And he did the address and all these kids did it. (laughs) I, you know, I remember hearing about that stunt and, you know, Shel Silverstein made a joke about it in his Uncle Shelby's ABZ book about going into your parents, you know, your mom's purse and getting money and sending it in. But yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, if you have technology, do your dirty work for you. You know, I always talk about like it takes economies of scale, which are like, oh, hey, we can help more people get access to more things this way into economies of hassle, right? Or economies of coercion where you can, where you can rip people off at scale, which is what, you know, many businesses would love to be able to do uh, to the extent that they can do it without oversight, because that's how you make money nowadays, right? It's, it's all about scaling up your, nickel and diming of people. And, you know, it's not ethical. It's not strictly ethical. I mean, one could argue about whether there's any ethics under capitalism, but that definitely is less ethical than other non-ethical practices. But at least those tech companies were tech companies scamming people with platforms and apps. Whereas now we're in an age like with FTX, where you can have a tech company that isn't even a tech company. That's basically, we're just going to sell the symbols of technology without, you know, this is not oh, even a bad application. I can't application. even explain <laughs> that story to people, right? All I can say is there's this young man, the press thought he was a genius. He was a he was not even clear about what he was doing. He ripped off people at scale. And, and there were so many middle people in between this kid sitting at home playing video games while he's supposed to be in a meeting and the very real people who invested money that they're never going to get back. And that remove, I think, is partly why you know, it encourages more people to do more scams, right? You never come face to face with the person who's ripped you off. There's not a risk that somebody's going to come to your house. I mean, like I was talking about, you know, the the local people, I was worried they would come after the very real library, you know, or my right. very real home address is on the internet. You know, it nobody's going to want to come to Vermont and give me a hard time, but it definitely is something I think about if I'm thinking about getting involved with some kind of dispute or, you know, interaction with bad people on the internet, yeah. you know, telling Elon Musk I think he shouldn't be CEO of Twitter. But, you know, when you go to scale, if there's very little 
for humans to have to do, like uh, uh, Twitter or Facebook or whatever. You can scale a whole lot. But if it's not even real, you can yeah. scale infinitely. And and what these, you know, what these folks did was leveraged against leveraged against leverage. They kept staking things on staking things and going meta on their own thing. And it was so odd to me that I felt like, and I see lots of things, oh, the poor victims, the poor innocent people. And it's like the poor innocent people were people who thought they could put their money into something and get a zillion dollars back for nothing. They know it's no, they're, it's a token, right? It's a matchstick. It's a virtual matchstick in a POW camp. And on some level, I'm like, well, kind of tough, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean I, if I, it I, never worked, people wouldn't continue to be doing it. The whole issue is sometimes it works, right? I mean, a lot right. of the early NFT people really did make a lot of money with nothing. It's just that then the market collapsed, the bottom fell out of it, and you know it wasn't going to happen. But those early people got to keep that money. If you invested in Bitcoin right. at the right time, and you could make it. a lot yeah. of money with nothing or very little money. And everybody right. thinks, maybe I can be that guy, you know? Maybe I can get in and get out while the getting is good. Stock market, you know, de depending, depending. GameStop, if you invested in GameStop at exactly the right time, use right. the Robinhood app. Like, we can all make a list of ways that did work for some people. Yeah. And some of that I liked, you know, because they're these bad guys. I enjoyed watching guys. some of it, yeah. yeah. I think there's all those bad whatever they are, hedge fund guys shorting this little company that's just trying to sell video games to kids. That was mean. And then the kids fight back, you know? It was hilarious to watch and watching like, you know, little Reddit armies. But it's less yeah. funny if the little Reddit army becomes the little Kiwi farm army and they, you know, stalk trans right. people all over the globe, right? And that yeah. becomes the awkward thing. Like the economies of scale, they can be a force for good or they can be a force for evil. I think the question is how do we encourage more people to do that in a force for good way? And what do you do about the people who just really want to like sow chaos and become either a force for evil or become a force for, you know, ultimately dehumanizing at least some of the people who deserve not that? Well, I want to talk about the most important force for good <laughs> in your life, which is is mosses. <laughs> I'm oh, really winter interested time in and I mosses. miss them so much. <laughs> yeah. So I'm confused I'm very new to mosses. I'm not new to mushrooms. I can I consider myself like a mycopunk now. I'm really into mycelial networks. The way Deleuze might have been into the rhizome, into mushrooms. Because the, they talk, they share, they've got intelligence, they innovate. There's like one big network. They transfer. The, they're like the Jews of the plant kingdom, if they were. You know, they, I have a they good transfer. movie to tell you about, about slime molds, if that is how uh, you feel. Yes. <laughs> if, yeah, yeah. Slime molds. But slime molds are fungi. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, slime molds. Yes, well, tell tell us all. What is the slime molds? Well, there was or a movie, like me and my partner, He, we live about two and a half hours away. And during COVID, we didn't spend as much time together, but we would always have movie night on Saturday night. And we would just find a movie, watch it together, thanks to the miracle of technology from a distance. And mm. somebody suggested this movie about slime molds and you know nature documentaries are kind of cool but i don't want to watch anything eat something else or get eaten and yeah. i don't want to watch animals fuck like there's a whole bunch of stuff i just don't yeah. want and this was all about like oh hey like did you know like 
again, like they talk to each other. They've got circulatory systems, which makes no sense for a single-celled organism. And it was a bunch of different talking heads talking about the different aspects of how you can train them to run mazes, but they're also a single-celled, like, mushroom thing like it's right. it's wild they, they, and they gather up together at certain times and they split up and go yeah. their own ways at other times it's really yeah. cool and it's just like you know nature's amazing right and and i also think about this when i think about technology right that i that i feel like everybody needs some technology in their life and some nature in their life like it was amazing everybody during covid's like oh forest bathing i'm like we just used to call that going for a walk but like you do you if that's the way you can make it work for you i I feel like that's better right the birds don't have i mean i guess there's avian bird flu exactly ignore me but like trees don't know that there's a global pandemic they don't care right right except that maybe we're around a little bit more to go breathe on them and nature is a little (laughs) more slow motion it can encourage us i feel like to be a little bit more slow motion and so when i lived two blocks up the road and lived closer to the forest because i was literally on the edge of a forest where i could have walked for several miles before i got to the next non-forest which was so cool now i'm two blocks from that you know you could go looking at Looking at mosses, looking at lichens, looking at stuff, and moss is really hardy. So before I became sort of a COVID home gardener, like I think a lot of us did, I would make little moss terrariums. You know, you grab a little moss, you get some little rocks, you get some Spanish moss, you put it in a jar, you put in some water, you put the lid on, and you leave it alone for a year, right? Or maybe really? like six you don't have months. To water it. Not really. They become their own. They become their own sort of internal. Wow. They sort of stay that way, but it also it's a little bit of green in your house. It's a fun thing to think about and look at. They photograph cool, so if you're somebody who uh-huh. wants to like keep up on social media, people like to look at them and they, you know, give you a little thumbs up ish. And if you're somebody like me who like you live alone, you don't really have a job that you go to, you don't have any kids, you don't have any pets, you don't cook. Like I mean, I cook, <laughs> but not like Instagram food cook. Yeah. It's it's a nice way of being able to connect with something you think is beautiful and interesting. And then I got more interested in, you know, bryology and the whole moss world of moss and lichens, which is kind <laughs> of interesting. Are they are they plants or are they fungus? Lichens sort of behave like a fungus, uh Moss technically, you know, it grows in a it grows in a in a substrate and doesn't become its own substrate. So, you know, more like plants. But I think a lot of that animal kingdom we're confused by, right? Because we thought you we mean knew. the classifications that they came up with are not real. I would have to go look. I mean, all taxonomies are <laughs> yeah. essentially wrong, right? Yeah. Just by benefit of being taxonomies. Yeah. That are they're maps. They're not the yeah. territory. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'll be honest, you know, the answer to that question, I would have to look it up to be sure. I'm not 100% confident. One of the great things about being a librarian is being like, eh, I don't know, I'll find out. <laughs> right. Oh, you've got oh, you've got access is the Tough main for thing. Podcasts, so, though. Yeah, but so you walk around in a forest, if you see a moss, you know, like on a tree, like a big furry thing, and you pet it, is that bad for it? No, not usually. I mean, because like funguses, they are colonies, right? And so theoretically they're all connected and I mean whatever it's bad for it in the way that walking outdoors is bad for the things under your feet but it's touching it it's not like a baby bird right right? where it's like oh you touch the baby bird and the mom won't be able to exactly you got your human oil I don't even know is that even true (laughs) I don't know (laughs) (laughs) someone said that to me when I was I touched a robin's egg and the mother of the 
the kid across the street said, you just killed a baby bird. You know, people who talk like that to children have something else going on, honestly. Well, They're I was not already, the bird saviors. I was saviors. six by then. It was, I, was, I was six. I was old enough to know better at six. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was mean, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think about, <laughs> I think about that a lot, right? I, I spent a lot of time this morning thinking about, like, spelling, right? Somebody emailed me about something. They misspelled my name, which is in my email address. And I was just like, Bleh. And then I'm like, is my reliance or noticing of like really is me being being very objective and prescriptive about spelling is that my own way of like differentiating and being judgy of other people or is it still okay to think that people who can't spell aren't putting in the work right and you know I have those questions a lot because around here you get a lot of people who like you know, do you compost? Do you live life in this way? Do you still eat white sugar? Do you buy from Amazon? Do you? And and it's not just Vermont. It's everywhere. But I think a lot more people concentrate in Vermont because those distinctions really matter to them. But then I feel like it's good to interrogate kind of what's behind those, right? We saw a lot of people uh, during COVID. I mean, this is super tangent, but, you know, talking about, look, those delivery services, you know, on the one hand, you might be like, man, go to the store yourself. But on the other hand, you're like, hey, if you're a person with disabilities, those are lifesavers to you. They enable you to live your life more fully because you can get other people delivering. Everything's complicated, right? The nuance we were talking about before. So I think about that with spelling myself, you know, and like it it is TikTok and TikTok's automatic putting of captions on things that are going to be spelled correctly, helping us not rely on spelling as a differentiator between people as a a not putting in the work aspect. Mm. Right. I know. I still, it's such a pet peeve. I see even good friends, very college educated friends spelling lose, you know, L-O-O-S-E. I don't know why it's everywhere now. And I actually just got spell corrected. The uh, an L O S E. It corrected it to L O O S E. And I'm like, what the heck was? What the heck is it doing? That was on Reddit. And I was like, why would Reddit do that? Why would it think that? What is it? What is going on? I mean, is it Reddit or is it your browser? I think it's your browser spell oh, check that browser? does that. If I may be oh, a computer nerd for a okay. second, <laughs> please. So it's like Safari doing it. It's Safari. It's Safari doing it. So it probably has something to do with your internal dictionary on your on your website, maybe. But yeah, I mean, for me, like my iPhone capitalizing God every time I want to use the word God in a sentence, I'm like, how dare you? Like that's that's a that's a cultural leap. That's not a spell yeah. check, you know. But- exactly. I remember in the old days, Microsoft Word would if you typed the word Jew, it would say it would underline and say, say offensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, offensive. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm not using it that way. Don't worry. I Don't remember. Worry. I am a Jew. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Oy. But yeah, again, that's why context matters. And it's just it's it's relatively impossible to get a, a, a sense of context or what what we've been calling local in these Internet spaces, which is why you've got to bend over backwards then to sort of, I think, is give the benefit of the doubt to pretty much everybody in every circumstance. Well, and that also becomes, again, like a nuanced position, right? I helped the American Library Association with our online code of conduct a couple of years ago. And one of the things that we kind of grappled with as a topic was, you know, a lot of the people who were creating it together initially were like, you know, hey, acknowledge that you may feel uncomfortable in some of these discussions. And like, that's one thing to talk 
if you're talking to me, a middle-aged white lady who, you know, comes from a fairly privileged background, relatively speaking, but should I tell like a woman of color who's getting somebody talking down to her about her own lived experience that she needs to feel uncomfortable? I don't know how I feel about that. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that's appropriate. And so benefit of the doubt, I think, and you know, Wikipedia's got assume good faith, right? And I think it's always a good starting point, but I also think, at what point do you have to be like, this is the same internet argument with not the same internet dude, but a different internet dude? How much do I need to assume good faith and discuss sort of trans 101 issues with them when they keep correcting the pronouns that I put in this article, which is what that person wants for themselves, right? Uh, I don't know. But it takes more time. And I feel like that is one of the other essential parts of this you know, putting in the work, taking the extra time, we don't feel like we always have the time. And I think that's what's required in order to make these things work better. Yeah. And it's hard to have the time even, you know, everybody's got six jobs and then the kids and then the this and even their entertainment time, if that's what it is on these, on these services, it's rushed. It's like how many tweets do they, you know, scroll through or... Right? I mean, a lot of people talk about the endless scroll being one of the things that sort of contributes to our sort of social, constant ambient social anxiety because you never get to the end, right? And you're always right. feeling like, eh, more, 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 more. It's like you can scroll Facebook forever. You don't get to the end of Facebook. And I think for a lot of people, that makes them feel unsettled. And it gives them a certain amount of tension in those online spaces that they might not have. We're like, me and my friend here go for a walk. We circle back. We get back to my place. The walk is over. We might talk for like five more minutes, but then I'm going inside. You know, it's not like we're not going to walk around the block forever. Eventually, you need to like eat or like do a thing. Whereas you can bring your freaking phone into the toilet with you. Like you don't have to stop for any reason. And and I think that's complicated for people, especially depending on what your relationship is to those spaces in the first place. Yeah. And then that's your social space and your workspace. There's no such thing as inbox zero anymore. Hey, shut up. Remember that with the... Oh, you can still do it? I can. I don't. Maybe you uh, can. I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> if I do it. I do it. Then more come in. It's yeah, like, I mean, it's I don't just... think it's a goal state the way, you know, sort of Merlin Mann <laughs> used to talk about it a million yeah. years ago or whoever else did. But yeah, I mean, people don't even think about it. I helped a lady in drop in time last week who had 163,000 unread emails. Like, that's not. That's not a yeah. That's not a workable environment for her, you know. And so you could kind of understand <laughs> why a lot of people are like, eh, like I want to use Slack or I want to use something else because my inbox is just, you know. I had a dream last night that I was telling people I was going to be tweeting, which is weird. I never dream about Twitter. Going to be tweeting, hey, I just got back from vacation and I've got inbox four. Ask me anything. And I was like, what the fuck was that dream about? That was weird. <laughs> But I do have like inbox like seven huh. right now. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do think I'm experiencing a trend where people seem a little bit less interested in having a zillion followers on Twitter or Instagram than having, you know, 50 really good relationships on a Discord somewhere, you know? It's like the cool next artist is not going to be the person with 5 million follows on Instagram. It's going to be the person in a Discord 
if you're looking to make money on art, it's going to be a person on Discord with a small following who you've never heard of. Right. It's going to be. Right. With the right, <laughs> with the right people interested in their work. But like the number of people that I know in sort of the old school, pardon me, the old school tech environments where most of their interactions don't happen in public social media spaces. They happen in, you know, private chats, WhatsApp, they happen on Discord. There's a lot of private slacks. Like if I have to think about the number of private slacks I have logins to with various groups of people and, you know, and you can sort of drop in and out of them in a way that I think a lot of people feel like they can't with social media, right? Like my sister's barely on Facebook and it's like a joke for her that she's going to make her monthly Facebook post so her friends know she's still alive. And then otherwise, you know, she's just barely there. And if I see something that has to do with our family, like, you know, distant relatives, I'll have to let her know because she probably won't see it. Whereas with me, eh, Facebook's a way to keep in touch with local people. I moved to a new place. I had to buy some new furniture. I've made my peace with the fact that Facebook exists and is awful because it solves some problems for me. And I don't feel like it's as dangerous. I don't feel like it's a danger for me in a in a big pressing way, I'm aware that it's a problem, but so is the supermarket, right? And maybe not right. on the same levels, but again, like you've you've gotta you've gotta pick your sort of battles. And what I like doing is at the end of the day, not having to sit around and feel bad that I used Facebook to find a nightstand, right? I'm okay with it. Right. And I'm not I'm not saying that it's that it's harm free either, but when I look at Two years later, or three years later, when I look at a movie like Social Dilemma, and I see, oh, these brilliant wizards who manipulated human consciousness, and now they've woken up to their evil, and they're going to turn all of their genius toward good. I'm like, I don't know. I think like we're maybe on some level blaming these technologies a little bit too much. They're not that magical. I mean, I get it. Kids are depressed and there's people cutting and it does engender anorexia and all these other kinds of things. But the idea that these are, you know, true, you know, behavioral finance, mind control apparatus, you know, the sort of Manchurian candidates that we're, that are every kid that goes on TikTok becomes a program drone. It's maybe giving them too much credit, right? Yeah. Like, I remember Michael Moore talking about, like, you know, the O.J. Simpson verdict and and why he didn't think at the time O.J. Simpson did it. And he was like, the killer was smart, not stupid like O.J. And I'm like, you know, mind control is would have to be smart, not stupid like social media. Right. Social media. Don't get me wrong. I like social media. I'm not. Yeah. You know, casting aspersions. I enjoy it for what it is. But sometimes I don't feel like as many things as people are ascribing to it are the things. They're just the collateral damage of what they were trying to do, which is, you know, endlessly expand into capitalism. Like I spent some time at a at a solstice bonfire on Saturday night when our Uh. power was out basically from like late Friday to like late Saturday. And so, you know, we're all cold and shoveling each other's driveways. And we went to a solstice bonfire at the neighbors. And I ran into one of my favorite like local women who also works in tech, right? She's a product manager for I don't even know what company. And there's not a lot of people here that work in tech. There's more people that have online jobs, but not people that work in tech. And we're talking about this and that. And she had a friend visiting from Seattle. Her friend from Seattle doesn't like Seattle, too many, you know, rich tech people she doesn't enjoy. But we were talking about how it is kind of weird being in Vermont because there is this sense, and it's not everybody, but it's definitely in the air and it's not small, 
that just screens in general are harmful in general, right? That you get a lot of people that believe kind of just so stories about, you know, kids should be outside running around in the woods and you shouldn't let them at all touch stuff. Or if you do, that's a problem. And I do think, again, it's ascribing to technology what ultimately is a social problem, right? That ultimately we're more disconnected from each other. Is it because of technology? I don't really know. Maybe we were moving that direction anyhow. But then we're blaming one thing in specific and not all the larger things in general that I feel like are part of it. And then what it means is for the people who do find that technology solves a problem for them or helps them connect to people. I mean, especially, again, like marginalized groups where maybe there's nobody like you in your town, but you can get on TikTok and find a thousand people like you. That's magic. Yeah. But then they get some judgy person telling them that if they're on their screen, there's something wrong with them. And it's it's awkward, right? And one of the things I try to do is like aim for kind of a middle ground and and having some positive talk about technology that isn't chirpy, like – oh, it's great for everything, but that helps contextualize it within our lives and not contextualize our lives within technology because I think that way lies madness, you know? Yeah. It's funny. As you talk, I'm also thinking of what you were saying earlier about that the things that don't really need to occur in public versus, you know, a lot of things can happen in a Discord or on a Slack or somewhere smaller. And on the other hand, it feels like everyone and their sister has a podcast. Everyone has a this. Everyone has that. So many people have so many things. There's so much media that we're finally in the place where people used to say, like if I said I have I wrote a book or I do this or I listen to that. Someone would say as if to as if to disparage it. They'd say, well, if that's so great. Why haven't I heard of it? Why haven't I heard of it? You know, and now I feel like. No one can say that with a straight face anymore because there's so much. There's so much. And I hear someone says, oh, you haven't heard of that. I'm like, no, what, what? And I accept it because I know there's 700,000 billion things that of course I can't. And that then returns us back to the old days on a certain level. Now I need who's going to guide me through this? Who's going to curate? Who's going to be my librarian to, you know, artsy lefty podcasts? Or who's going to help me through? I want to learn about 1970s anime. And you know what? I'm going to have to find uh, right, area right. experts again. And Google and then we're back maybe to the good isn't old days. the path. I mean, we've been right. watching people leave Twitter for like Mastodon or whatever. I've seen a lot of people from sort of my old cohort starting their blogs up again. And I'm one of those like, you know, cranky oldsters who never stopped writing to my blog. People just stopped <laughs> reading it. And that's okay. You know, it's, it's not for them if they didn't want to read it but 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 i but i enjoy that right that 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 people can see themselves as content creators on a larger scale not just feeding content to a social media platform that doesn't care about them right you know you can host your own wordpress instance you can pay for your own website you can you can do something that if twitter decides to ban you tomorrow for no reason you've still got your things and and I feel like returning to that as a value, as a thing we care about, is great. And also, oh, my God, do I love – like, you know, we were having lockies with a whole bunch of friends uh, the other night and um, – Saturday night, Sunday night. And, you know, everybody was talking about the things they'd been sort of watching, reading, or listening to. And it wasn't just all shit you heard on NPR or VPR, which it used to be. And I didn't like that, you know, because yeah. NPR, VPR isn't my area – 
it's fine if it's other people's, but that whole idea that, of course, we all value this, and of course, we all listen to this show, and of course, we all, you know, it's like watching the New York Times get their ass handed to them. I don't mind it, right? Because it's giving them too much power to to determine what people are going to talk about. And I really like people being able to find their stuff and not feel like just the most popular stuff is what most people are watching most of the time. It's nice, right? The, yep. the era of the people who just like watch the daily news at night and get sort of the talking points for the next day, we're moving past it. And I, for one, welcome that because it wasn't great, especially when we turned to, as the news got shadier and shadier uh, and more and more just yeah. big pharma press releases and stuff, it became less and less useful. I mean, we've still got a daily newspaper or not a daily. What am I even saying? We've still got a weekly <laughs> newspaper in my town, like that's written in my town, you know, and it talks about town, you know, select yeah. board meetings. Like right. nobody cares about that except the local people, but the local people care a lot. And how great that we can get that information without having to go to the select board meetings because they're deadly dull. Yeah, no, and it, it it's back. I mean, again, it's back to the good old days of the net when we all had our own little HTML websites. Everyone had a different interface. Everyone was interested in different things. And we it was like the, the early net celebrated the weird. And then it became increasingly kind of generic and conformist. And I feel like it's it's bifurcating it's it's breaking up again and there's more people there's more people with yeah. access there's more people who can take part there's more people who could create and be a part of that and who demand more in terms of uh, you know being civil and respectful and reasonable online and i think that makes us better people frankly not not worse you know what i mean i'm, I'm a big code yeah. of conduct fan because i think setting expectations helps us all meet each other in a place that we agree on it's not just dictated by the people with the money the power or the loudest voice right you don't need your proof of stake to yeah. participate yeah exactly <laughs> I guess uh, I'll tell everyone all your uh, your various web addresses and things, but is there a, a place you want people to go and look in particular right now? I mean, the big thing I always tell people is like, hey, get your public library card. You never have to go there again. You can get ebooks and crap right in your house if you don't like going there. But I always encourage people because I think people maybe checked into the library 10 years ago and didn't realize the library has evolved. And so I'm always the yeah. person who's hopping up and down being like, try it. Well, I'll tell you the coolest thing in the world, I think still, <laughs> is you go to the public library and go through, use the computer and find like a really, really weird book that you want to read. And then they don't have it in your library, but they find it. In our library they find, alone. You fill out a form. It's amazing. And they find it. And amazing. you get a book and it'll say like, Minneapolis Free Library, whatever. And you get this weird ass book and it's just for you. They exactly. got it. People pulled it out there and they stuck it in an envelope or something and got it there. And the feeling of when they call you that your book is there and you go and you know that three or four different human beings got this book to you for you to see the weird thing that you wanted to see. For like, their you know, job. How I know for their job. I know for their job, but they but they're doing it also. I take it as a, an act of service to me oh, no, that no, they no. care I, yes. that I get to see the yellow life cycle of the yellow bat. That some person in Hastings cares about the life cycle of the yellow bat, and we're going to get this to him. And just the sense of appreciation you get for doing that 
it's such a sense of affirmation that you're supported in in this world by other people. I encourage everyone, just go find a weird book that you really want to see, and they will get it for you. Accept that service. Well, and it's a distributed system, just like your favorite yeah. funguses, right? Your library in America <laughs> is part of the library system in America, and we all talk to each other, right? Imagine that. And share with each other. And share with each other. Yeah. Aw. Well, thank you, Jessamyn. Thank you for for teaching us so much. Sure. It was great to talk to you, see your face, and, you know, get to talk about the things that I love. So thanks for having me. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Jessamyn West. You can find out more about her work at librarian.net or come to teamhuman.fm to find out more about Jessamyn and all of our guests and where you can become a supporting member of the team. Just a little announcement for Team Human members. We will have a live salon in the Kibitz Room coming up on January 20th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That will form the basis of our show the following week. They may have become my favorite part of this whole project. It's like human beings on a team together. Duh. So thanks for coming to those. And thanks to Josh for giving me the confidence to try it. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.